Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast that's won about 12 less Board Game Geek Golden Geek Awards than Wingspan. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? Always wonderful, my man. Very timely. When did the Geek, <laughs> the geek Awards come out? Uh, several weeks ago at this point. <laughs> that's fine. We are always about that old hotness and in our jokes is no different, my dude. <laughs> Uh, you did not win most innovative podcaster. I didn't win most innovative or best artwork. I didn't win anything. I did not win best card playing podcaster either. Yeah, it's just a bummer. I thought I thought this year would be my year for artwork. I've been dressing better, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's I guess it's not for me. I know. Well, when you're in the same room as like something like Wingspan, you really don't have a prayer. No, you don't. It's just the best game. If you haven't heard, uh, only by Wingspan and Play Wingspan. It's the only game that exists that is fun. Speaking of which, you showed me a bizarre thing this morning, which I'm still kind of rolling my eyes and laughing about, yet I'm secretly kind of fetishizing. Little background, I woke up this morning to Jake sending me a link saying, whoa, check out the crazy patches Board Game Geek has. And they have five patches out there. And what are they? Well, they're not actually that weird. So I'll say I always get the Board Game Geek store. I'm a big fan of the Board Game Geek store. We like putting stuff in our games, but they're into like the pins, but I don't really like pins because they get crappy and fall off your bag or fall off your hat or whatever you put them on. But they have patches now, which are kind of the same thing where you can have a little bit of flair to a bag or something. I like getting them on places I've traveled and stuff like that and putting them on like a backpack or something along those lines. Um, but they did the weirdest list of like five games and I'm actually going to pull it up real quick. So spoiler alert, Wingspan was one of the five. Which totally makes sense, right? So if you were a board game publisher trying to do patches, you'd probably say, okay, let's do like Wingspan. That's a game for this year. Let's do like Ticket to Ride, Catan. Snark aside, it was a massive seller last year. Right, 100%. And you think that they'd aim for this. But instead, Board Game Geek did like the weirdest list of five games ever. So the first one being Wingspan, that actually makes sense. The other ones they did is Teach You. A pretty obscure card game that is kind of not super loved by the board game world, but is loved by the people who play it. And especially your boys, the gaming moguls. Oh, 100%. It's almost like we made these. It seems like ironic, (laughs) but we we didn't actually make these. The Geek Patch for Raw, the auction Reiner Knizia classic, but not the most current edition by Fantasy Flight. The edition (laughs) that you have of Uber Play with the Raw wooden marker. Yep, which is so cool. That one was awesome. Yeah, very cool. But that's also a blast from the past. They have Takanoko, which is that's pretty normal. It's a cutesy little game. I've never played it, but I've heard really good things for like a family weight game. I think you've played it, right? Oh, yeah. It's one of my daughter's favorite games. And uh, honestly, you should try it. It's a great game. Oh, I'm sure it is. I just have never really been in a circumstance to play it. I've never been offered it. Usually when I'm playing with gamers, we'll play something heavier. But the final one being Food Chain Magnet, uh, the, the Gluttony Inc. Burger Company from that. <laughs> Which is still, I guess, within BGG's wheel, wheelhouse normal, but it's like if you were to choose like three games that we've really been loving on for a while, it'd be like a splatter game, teach you and raw some auction game. Honestly, the only one they missed there is they needed like a hex tile. Right. Which I think they will in some point in time where they can do like a 57 or something along those lines tile. Oh, Mark, you don't know the names. That's a straight city. I, OK, I was going to guess. Is that like the Green X city or something like that? No, that's a straight city. Let's see if I'm right. Oh, I am right. 57 is the straight city, the straight yellow city. This is awesome radio, Jake. I know. I am. So <laughs> All right. It's been a while. Let's uh, let's dive into it. We got an action packed podcast for the folks tonight. But speaking of 18xx things, I see that you did a Kickstarter that I'm pretty jazzed about. Oh, I know. So my favorite 18xx game. And uh, this controversial choice among the moguls. We definitely have different favorites, but my favorite one still is probably 1822. Huge game. Don't get to play it very often. In fact, my copy's been played exactly once, and I was super happy. Given that we're actually friends with Scott Peterson, we knew this was coming, but it was just delightful to see the new Kickstarter release of 1822 with freshened up arts and all the extras included in there, including all the regional scenarios and... You know, honestly, at a much better price than I bought my copy for in the first place. And Jake, what do you do, man? It matches my copy of 1849 and my copy of 18 Harzban, but it doesn't match my new pretty copy of 18 Chesapeake worth a darn. So if you're me, you share the love. You pass your old copy on to somebody else who wants a copy and you buy the new one. Right. And I think it's great. And that's, I think, where I'm going to stand here is I'm really happy that you're kickstarting it and I don't have to. And I can finally tap out on buying these 18xx games, knowing that we have one in the group. But that weird little collection gremlin in the back of my mind 
is kind of maybe going to kickstart this game. I don't know why I ever would, because I don't like 22 very much. I think it's kind of the bottom half of 18xx games I've played, at least the full version. I'd rather play something else that's longer, or I'd rather play a short version, or I'd rather play 22MX if I really wanted to play a 22-style game. But I'm excited that Scott's got it. It seems like the Kickstarter's running gangbusters, and it should be going really well for him. Seems good. And Jake, an email came out tonight, update number five in the Kickstarter thing. Whoops, I think we just dated what day this was recorded. Uh, <laughs> that, that listed out the new unlocked uh, upgrade to it is the new 18 Chesapeake style board art on the board. Oh, that actually does change the calculus. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to think about it. We'll think. We'll see. <laughs> I, I love the way these games look. And there's been a decent amount of scarcity in this hobby for a while, for the last, last like two years. And knowing that I could just like get a game in six to eight months, that sounds pretty good. But I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll sell my normie games. We'll see, because most likely by the time this podcast actually drops, we'll only have a couple of couple of days left on the on the thing. And you can see if I backed it or not. Yep. Well, and I'm thinking if there's a if there's a year I got to go without having a 10 hour 18 XX game, maybe this isn't a bad year to be without that yeah global pandemic going on and all that stuff so exactly but not going deep diving onto games we didn't play how about we deep dive on games we did play yeah it's been a while since we had our last episode so i think we got a whole bunch of games to start off with but why don't i hit us with one quick 18xx ones kind of keep all the 18xx conversation kind of nestled together 18xx.games is a new website put out by believe toby mao is his name husband to Ambi Valdez, former guest mogul, Ambi Valdez, 100%. And they've been doing a great online imp- implementation of a way to play 18xx online. So there's rr18xx.net or something. I can't remember the thing. And then board 18 with spreadsheets, which is as we've talked about in previous episodes, how we like to play it. But I've been fooling around with this new system for playing these games online, and I've been really enjoying it. So far, um, when that 18xx.games was first put out, it only had 1889 on it, but they also put 18 chessy on it. So I was playing with some friends and had a lot of fun with it. But the thing that I think is interesting about 18 Chesapeake, and I haven't really learned this before, is it ends in bankruptcy kind of a lot when you play in three player, <laughs> which you would never imagine. With, which, no. Right, right. And I, I don't know what was going on. I don't know if it was our meta or something, but we played three games of in three player, really, really rapid fire. And two of the three ended in bankruptcy, which is a pretty high hit rate. Usually a lot of the games that we play don't end in bankruptcy. Like even 1882 is only, I think, 50% bankruptcy for me. Sure. I, to me, at least. That is a feature, not a bug. No, completely agree. Uh, that was interesting. It also goes to show that 18 Chessy can be a good game for experienced players because we were bankrupting everybody and kind of doing a little bit of brinksmanship there, which was pretty dang cool. That is cool. I have not yet had a chance to try Toby's new implementation of this yet, which, I, boy, I would really love to sometime here soon. I, I did catch a little note here that he implemented three slash five trains in this system, and you know why that's interesting, don't you? Uh, uh, Harzbon? No, three slash five trains are in your favorite game, oh, Jake. 46. I don't know why. I I, th- I thought you'd be all jazzed about Harzbon. I didn't think you that, that would that. be cool. I mean, but yeah. even even that would be an obscure one to jump to next. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited that they're doing 46 next because 46 has that stupid draft. And so it's all oh. really hard to do. On Having an all in one right? system online to handle the draft at the beginning for the privates would be such an upgrade yeah well maybe when you're maybe we should get a game spinning up on there with a different group of people it's really cool and i'd like to see how you like it um it's a little more fragmented than board 18 is especially when you get as used to it with the google spreadsheets as we are i can really find the information on like an 1832 spreadsheet really quickly and i can grok it really quickly it's got a little bit of a learning curve with 18xx.games it seems like it's improving every single time i play it but still it's a different kind of thing and it's something that's going to take getting used to. I don't, I can't quite speak as somebody who's completely new because I'm not, I'm very biased. I love 18, board 18 and Google spreadsheets. So. Yeah. And I saw, I saw an early implementation of it that um, quite honest, I mean, it was very early. So from screenshots I've seen recently, it's plainly come a long way since then. Absolutely. That is 18 Chessy and a little conversation on 18 XX dot games. What are some games you've been playing this week, Mark? Well, the good news is I've had the chance to play a lot of games with my family. 
one of the things that I think this global pandemic has brought to us is that we are taking more time as a family to sit down and play games because we're not able to get out and do things the same way we would always do otherwise. So we've gotten a lot of reps in on some of our favorite games while we were gone. And one of them that uh, interestingly was requested by my 12-year-old daughter was Yokohama, our <laughs> gaming mogul's favorite by Hisashi Hayashi and TMG Games. Quick recap, Yokohama is a a game where you're traveling around the city of Yokohama, moving around little assistants to make a path for your president to walk around. And however many pieces you have on that location that you land on is how strong of an action you get there. And ultimately, what you're really trying to do is just collect resources that you can turn in for different order fulfillments, or you can buy technologies to give you power ups. And there is a bit of a point salad, uh, multiple ways to trigger and end the game. Pretty crunchy game. It's been out two or three years, and uh, it's definitely one of our favorites. I do have a little meta question, though, for the listeners. Did you have to adjust the lighting in the, in the, in the tabletop simulator box to play it? Super, super meta. The lighting in my game room, Jake, is lovely, and we're okay, playing gotcha. it in person. Not too bright. Got it. Okay. Okay, got it. I was reminded of the fact, though, this is the first time since Gen Con that we had played it as a family, because everybody looked at my... Uh, fancy little mini meeple guys for the assistants and went oh these are new and i'm like oh yeah i got those at gen con last year <laughs> it's been a while yeah so i consider myself good at this game i've won it more than my share of times i i really enjoy finding new strategies and trying different things on it and optimizing and improving and since my wife figured out how to play how to actually play the game i haven't won since and now my daughter's taking the throne. She absolutely greased both of us. That's great. <laughs> yep, the 12-year-old cleaned our... And I was trying to. I was doing everything in my power to get in her way and stop her. And she literally ran away with it. And that, that was really a proud dad moment. That's awesome. Well, good job, Elizabeth. <laughs> was it interesting comparing it? I know you've played Airship City. Is that the name of it? A game yeah. that you said was kind of yeah. similar to it. Was it interesting doing those so close to each other? It is. And this is something that I'd like to do an episode in the future where we kind of compare and contrast Istanbul, Yokohama and Airship City side by side, because they're all plainly in the same family, but they all do things a little differently. Like Yokohama is the point saladiest of all of those. And I would actually say it's probably the middleweight one as far as uh, crunchiness goes. I actually found Airship City to be a little on the crunchier side, but no, I certainly enjoyed the play of it. The multiple different ways to win and the multiple different scoring methods certainly is where it stands uniquely from the other ones. Gotcha. Well, that's awesome. It's always interesting. I'm not the biggest fan in playing games just to compare them, but it is always really fun to like kind of sometimes be academic about games, you know? And in this case, all three of those games are are, are a lot of fun. Like I, I like right. this formula of game where you're traveling around a grid of locations and doing that location. And, uh, you know, fulfilling orders and doing stuff with that and how you spin that in different ways. I like that formula. So I enjoy all three of those right. games and they all it's not academic to be academic. Yeah, that's for sure. So one of the things you can do in Yokohama is when you take your action, you either put down three workers in three different locations or you put down two workers in one location. And I was really bending over backwards to make sure that I was always doing the three assistant location action this time, rather than just taking two and just going for the quick win next door. Because I think long term, you really always want to get those three assistants out every single time so that you have more longer term powered up actions rather than just one short term one. And uh, my son, on the other hand, really likes to just put down two and just go there right away and do a kind of a mid power action immediately. And neither of us won. <laughs> but I. I, I'm still holding on my theory on that one. I think that can be right. But then you run into the economy issue of do you have enough of those workers out there? Because when you're putting three out every time and you're kind of shoving them to the wind and not pulling that many of them back, you can certainly get to a situation where you don't have enough to put out. Well, and I painted myself in that corner partially because of that. And also partially because I went really hard at the achievements, the, you know, the A, B and C awards mm -hmm. for having like seven fish. And I also went really hard at the church awards right away. So I had out pretty early in the game, I had two of the achievements done and I had two of the things up on the church. So I looked out at one point and I already had six assistants locked up in places, just using them as markers. And I had just singleton guys scattered all over the map. And I was literally putting down one guy instead of three every turn. And that didn't really work well. Yeah. 
Well, I'm happy you played because I love that game. I actually actually played it pretty recently. I mean, it's probably one of the last 10 games I've played because I've played that many games in a while, but it's such a good game. It's I, I, I love this game. If you never tried it, at least try it. It's worker placement, Euro conversion-y, but in a good way. You know, it's not a pejorative to say it's point salady. I don't know that I would really consider it worker placement. It's action selection, but it's action selection on a map. Like you have to physically go to the area that you're going to do the action at. Right. Versus just doing worker placement to do worker placement. It's a step beyond that. Right. It's worker placement plus, if you will. Anyway, glad to pull that one out again. Yokohama by Hisashi Hayashi and TMG Games. I got a chance to try a newer game to both of us and kind of to the world kind of asterisk. Mm-hmm. About a handful of months ago, I think it was in January, there was the pre-orders for a, the second game in the Iron Rails game system following up the smash hit of last year, Irish Gage, Ride the Rails, another original uh, winsome game designed by John Bohr, this time under the pen name of Harry Wu. But it was going to be the second one, which is great because I loved Irish Gage. So it was a pretty instant buy for me um, without even really doing much research on it. So I got to actually try it. And it's kind of weird, dude. We played <laughs> it three player. Um, the one thing that's great about it, and I first should start with this, is, man, these games are so cool because of how rules light they are. Oh, yeah. No Anytime question. anybody talks about like win, uh, not winsome, wingspan being light. It makes absolutely no sense to me because literally the entire rules and the entire game for Ride the Rails is on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And one side of that eight and a half, 11, like one side is how you set up the game and the other side is the rules. Right. And maybe not specifically split like that, but they have a big picture of the thing, big picture of the map, like how to set it up. And they have a little bit of rules at the bottom and then they have the rest of the rules. And then at the very bottom, they have all the legalese stuff, like all the, the, the license holders and all that stuff that they put on it. But man, this game is kind of interesting. First, as a caveat, I've only played it once, still pretty unsure if I like it, love it, hate it, kind of where it is. But it was different. We played it three player which I do not think my one takeaway from the gameplay was I don't think it's a very good three player game. Hmm. So kind of what you're doing is you are investing in rail companies. We've heard about that. And then you're building these railroad companies across the world to then finally, the last part of the game is to link move passengers to cities, much like an age of steam. But what's kind of interesting is you can't always have one train company growing kind of the entire game. You know, in like, let's say Irish Gage, there's going to be a certain point in time where the company runs out of train pieces and it's done, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of towards the end-ish of the game, right? You've built a decent route. It probably has gone some places. It can do some things. It's, it's, it's pretty well set up. In this game, in Ride the Rails, it seemed to happen really quickly. But how they flip that is... There's a certain number of starting spots. And so for the map that we played, there's a handful of maps for this game. But the one that we played is the continental US. But first, in the very first two rounds of the game, you can only have the East Coast two companies. I can't remember the colors off the top of my head. And then at like the third round, you can start the Chicago company or the most West one. And then after that, there's another one that can start kind of in a different place, kind of towards the Rockies. And then the final two companies can be started in like anywhere or the West Coast specifically. And so you're kind of building these really long chains of different companies to run these passengers super, super, super far linkwise, so you can get the most money paid out depending on who owns the different companies. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's hard to explain because it's like a lot of other games, and I kind of rest on that. To me, this game is like Chicago Express meets nice Age of Steam delivery without any color restrictions and really generous payouts. Okay. But it was really fun. It kind of felt more ticket to ridey at that level than like kind of the mean cutthroat Irish gauge that could have been the player count. But it was really interesting. It's just amazing to me how different these gameplays can really be based on hexes and little trains. Right. And I, I haven't played it yet. I, I do own a copy and I had the same reaction as you. I opened it up, looked at the rule sheet and went, huh. That's, well, that's simple. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect like a lot of these games, a, a lot of the cube rail games that, that were originally winsome games, there's another level that you discover with multiple plays that, you know, you play it the first right. time through and you kind of go, eh, there's not much to this. And then somebody goes and does something crazy on you where you all of a sudden realize that 
oh, there's a lot more to this game than I originally realized the first time I opened this box and just played it by the rules. And the strategy comes around and swings at you and you realize that uh, the depth of the game that's in right. front of you. And I don't know, I haven't played this yet, but I would be shocked if that wasn't the case with this one. No, absolutely. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because if I did sound that way and that flippant to it, I did not mean to come across that way because I agree. I just was surprised at how easy it was to just do stuff, you know, and then mm-hmm. it kind of became an optimizing of like, how can I do this stuff the best and how can I hurt other people? But it's not just a feel good game. I invested in somebody's company to make it so it could never really get any more routes because I was getting their payments that they're going to use anyways on that and didn't need to increase their ownership of it and made it so it couldn't get crazy out of hand with it by just making a big cluster of them not connecting any more cities. So I do think it's kind of feels very similar to the other winsome games that we played in Cube Bro games in general that are really mean, pretty play interactive and all that stuff. But it's just a little too early for me. But in regards to weight, I think this one's even lighter than Irish Gage, which is a pretty light game already. It should be just really fun to uh, figure out. I'm excited to play it when we're actually in person because I think it'll be the perfect kind of filler length, 45 minutes to an hour, 10, not necessarily a full weight game, not necessarily a light plan, point games all the time kind of game. Yeah. So where would you put this on the mogul scale, Jake? Little too early. I'm not actually going to put it on the website, but I think as of now, it's like a one or a two B or a C depending on kind of where I put it. Okay. I was guessing it was probably going to be a one based on the single page of rules kind of thing. And I was assuming it was going to be a B or C strategy wise. Yeah. And I think that's where it's going to be. It's definitely lighter than Irish gauge, I would say. And I'd have to go back and cross reference where we have Irish gauge at. But one thing I will say it shares with Irish gauge is I love the design language and the artwork on the box and the size of the box and the production of it. I absolutely love it. That is such a cool looking game on the shelf. Well, there's something about not being embarrassed about these games, right? And so I have a lot of friends and I played this with my friends who aren't as into games, but we had them over for just like a quick little Saturday night. It was just three of us. My wife was out of town and uh, it was just really nice to pull out something you're just like really proud of and show that it's this weird financial game that wasn't made by somebody laminated in their basement, right? (laughs) Sure. And that is a little bit of hipster appeal to it, but just having it be like a really kind of established good thing is nice and i mean the production in this game is not overdone we're not talking about minis they just hit it right in that pocket of really nice consistent good yeah it's tasteful little like little uh person little tiny meeples in there but just really concise and beautiful artwork yeah and it's restrained as well i mean they could have done sure. cubes instead of the little the little train guys but i'm not losing any sleep over that choice it's just it's good it's a good thing I will lose my mind, though, if they suddenly go rogue and the third box in the series doesn't match. Oh, I will be, too, because they're all lined up next <laughs> to each other. And if the next one goes like double wide or something, I'm burning <laughs> it all down. Uh, that would be just our luck because, boy, they look cool lined up on the shelf next they to each other. Do. I'm very excited to see what the next one is and to play more of both Irish Gage because I actually did play Irish Gage the same game night and Ride the Rails because uh, they're both just sick games, dude. They're just really fun. It's not in any way, shape, or form a Cube Rails game, but boy, I would love it if they redid across the United States in that same art style and box and production value. Oh, completely agree. And I think it'd fit in with the kind of ethos of those games as well, of Cube Rail-y, but maybe a little lighter, a little more accessible, kind of funner version of it. But yeah, no, that'd be a great one too, because that across the United States is a great game, but oh boy, it is not pretty. <laughs> no. Talk about boxes that you're really not so proud of. That one isn't so good looking. Yeah, as a as a white dude, I'm debatedly offended by the box on that one. <laughs> you know, it's just it's like, really, is that what we look like? Oh no, this is bad. <laughs> I will say though that that is that game has actually really taken fire in our family, and so much so that it's on my list of what we played this week. So, how was that for a transition, Jake? There it is. <laughs> I I honestly do think that across the United States, which, by the way, I should probably give a little backstory on. I do think that is one that will get picked up and published in the United States somewhat soon by somebody, TMG or, you know, who also seems to do a lot of Hisashi Hayashi games. Right now, it's published by Okazi Brand, available only in Japan. But I think it's too good of a game, and I think it would sell well enough in the U.S. and that it really should get republished by somebody here. So, hey. You know what? Uh, do it up in the same box style as those other <laughs> Ride the Rails games. That'd be great. Absolutely. That's the standardized style now. 
But I think what was great about it for me is we were, uh, I think, a week ago, we could go on a Saturday. We had about an hour to play something, just my wife, my son, and I. And uh, we only had about an hour to play, and I wanted to play something with some actual thinking to it. So I whipped out across the United States and taught that to them instantly. And uh, whew, both of them loved it. Loved it to the point where I woke up the next morning, Sunday morning, and they were both teaching my daughter how to play it. So they whipped out and pulled out a train game while I was sleeping to play it without me. Yeah, I mean, this game, we've spoken on it a lot. I don't think we need to really mine it again, but it's just everything I wanted out of Ticket to Ride, but better, yeah, right? Yeah, It's It's not just gin rummy with a map. This is a little bit more thinky, but still something you can really get your head wrapped around. It's pretty elegant-ish. Maybe if they were to really develop it, maybe take off like 10% of the top or something along those lines, made it a little simpler. It'd even be like the most accessible train game for families ever. And it's yeah. it's it's got an interpretation of the United States geography that is not correct. And it's always fun to teach people <laughs> how incorrect it is. You know, I'm looking at for the map sure. now. Cleveland is the very tip of Michigan there and Detroit's just way north in Canada. It's like <laughs> nearly by Thunder Bay. Oh yeah. And there's you know, there are cities that are out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, it's <laughs> just it's, it's bad. The fact of the matter is, I mean, it is a stock market game. Mm-hmm. And where you're fulfilling orders and you're doing a lot of other ticket to ridey kind of things. What I love about that is it packs all of those things in that once you know how to play it, this is a 30 minute game. So it has the benefit of being both heavier yet faster than ticket to ride, which is a huge win for me. Right. I agree. This game should be picked up by a United States publisher, really put some shine on and added to the world because it's just it could be just the perfect my first train game kind of a competitor to Ticket to Ride. Yep. It was a quick teach. There was, it was a little funny. The, it was a little funny trying to get across the turn structure where you have to, uh, you know, you lay a cube to grow your route, then you get benefits. And then if you uh, happen to connect to one of their home bases, then you get to buy a share and put it out there. Well, and then after that, you get just to get laid down a share for free. Yeah, that when do I buy and when do I just get to lay down a share for free was a bit confusing and took a couple of reps before they finally managed to internalize that. So that was the Across the United States by Hisashi Hayashi, published in Japan by Okazu Brand, published here, hopefully by somebody soon. My final game that I've been playing in the last while is uh, another 18xx games, and uh, I'm sure the memes can come out about how I only play train games because I kind of do. Especially with this, I've been playing a lot of asynchronous games, but we've been playing a lot of 1832 designed by Bill Dixon and published by Deep Thought Games. And what's fun, Mark, is it seems like we have not been playing async games together very often, but we've been playing 1832 together a bunch, which is really fun. Yeah, you've kind of gone off and got your own little group and spun off and started playing with other people and left me in the dust. But I'm glad you decided to slum and take me along for the 1832 ride because it's been a lot of fun to go where you came from, you know, and it's funny because you'd think because I play so much, I'd be great at this game. No, I got my ass handed to me twice in this group. (laughs) This was my second play of it. I was a little salty after that first play, Jake. You were, which is so funny because you keep on thinking that I'm doing intentional mean track lace to you. And I will say, let the record show. I have never once tried to be mean to you via track in any async game. I'm always trying to build my own thing. I'm a super engineer. All I want to do is make big money. I don't care about being mean to other people track-wise. I will be mean to people token-wise, but I will not be mean to people track-wise. You keep, keep on thinking I'm mean to you track-wise, but I'm not. <laughs> I, I think I accused you of being mean to me token-wise as well, but this time I made a point of setting myself on the opposite side of the map so that you couldn't play with me even if you want to. And We never even bumped into each other. Never, ever. So for the listeners at home, 1832 is an 18xx game set in the southeastern United States, pretty much all the way from Florida, all the way northwest to Kansas City, all the way north to Virginia, all the way southwest to uh, Louisiana and New Orleans, I believe, is the the, the, the bounding. Um, It is very similar to 1870 and 1850 two other Bill Dixon designs. And the way they're similar is the IPO shares pay into the company and you can like reissue some of the shares. But what's cool about 1832 and the reason I think why we like it so much is it has systems in it. Systems being where two big 10 share companies shove together and make something beautiful out of itself. And something beautiful, namely being a 20 share company, which 
on the upside has the benefit of giving you some like superpowers like hey i can now lay three tiles or i can right. upgrade one and lay another one which is awesome it also gives you shells which are the uh gnarliest gamiest thing ever because a shell means that you can like instead of being at your train limit you can sort of push all your trains into one shell and then make yourself forced by into the other shell which again allows you to get way more trains than you should have otherwise and be able to use funds in ways you wouldn't normally be able to when i think the thing that we both love about 18xx games are things that play fun until the very end and i think with systems it gives you a decision to make kind of late in the game instead of just like i guess i'm gonna float another company and luck into a permanent train not luck get a permanent train or two you know it's more than that it's yeah. about figuring out when's the right time to float something and judge all this stuff but oh my god i love it's it. it's a legitimate late game strategy right and you have to think about it everything every every point in this game is important not just the beginning not just the auction it's just it's great the other thing i will say about systems though is it, it's not all it's not all wine and roses on that because you do actually suffer through some pretty severe stock dilution through that because you still do have the same number of shares as far as your limit goes, and now you're in a 20-share company. To get 60% of a company, you now have to have 12 shares of that rather than just six shares of the company and so forth. So you have to be careful about when you do it because one of your companies may lose value when you merge them because you average the two companies together and you dilute your shares quite significantly. So ultimately, it pays off because you can have a big company with lots of trains that runs for a lot of money, but there's a step backwards to get there. Right. And you have to have twice the number of trains because it's two companies, right? Oh, yeah. The one thing that's also interesting is you can leave them trainless, right? So that probably been the one thing we could have done towards the end of the game is somebody could have dropped a trainless big company on somebody else, depending on where PD was, which could have been kind of interesting. But I think as the listeners can probably well tell, I'm a huge fan of 1832. It's one of the 18xx games I'm going to give a pretty rare 10 to. Uh, most of them get like nines or eights or sevens. But I'm just absolutely enamored with this game. I love the geography. I love all the different companies. It just seems so fun to be able to peel all the different layers of this game. And I've played it six to eight times now. So I'm certainly getting there, trying to figure this game out. And it's still it's getting the better of me. But aside from your butthurt comment, Mark, after your first play, what do you think about it? <laughs> oh, it's great. I really enjoyed this play a lot. It, there is a lot of levers to it that I don't understand yet. I think the reason I was a little sore about it the first time around is anytime there's a game with merger rounds, they always seem like they're this big screeching brakes record scratch needle across the record. You're trucking along and all of a sudden goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now it's time for a merger round. And you're like, oh, crap, I had this all figured out. And now the whole world changes and right. so forth. And when you know that that's the cadence that's going to happen and you can prepare for it, it's a lot of fun. But the first time you play through that, I find games with mergers can be sometimes little challenging to figure out and i just i felt like every time i started getting something going everybody'd stop and go whoa whoa whoa, whoa. the last six train was sold so now we got to have a merger round <laughs> well this one's really bad too because of that thing explicitly it has that thing where just there could be a stock round or a merger round right in between an or you know where it's like that could change everything that's super weird yeah um, another angle of it that I thought was especially interesting is the way that you can price protect shares. So there's a couple of mechanisms in there that allow you to protect the the price of your shares when somebody tries selling yours. You can either rebuy them instantly, or there's also a, le a soft ledge that they'll hit that they won't bump through as they go down on the stock market. So what can basically happen is if somebody sells your shares, you instantly have the chance to kind of go out of turn and buy up those shares, and it doesn't affect the stock cost at all. And it also, by price protecting and buying up your shares, it allows you to go over 60% ownership in each company, which is also a super gamey way to do it. But you have to have the money on hand. The problem is you can't sell shares to buy your shares back. And the turn order then immediately goes after you when you price protect. So somebody may just straight up get skipped in turn order as a result of price protection. So I think this game is better in person than it is online, even though the spreadsheet and the board 18 box for this are just both beautiful they're amazing but i think if you were to play this game in person you would a be able to figure out the cadence of the ors and srs that's kind of a thing that's annoying about these games you know because you always just check the little reference spot on the board on what or and sr you're at and it's color-coded right so you can tell if you when you go to three or if there's always two and all that stuff but the final thing being um with the mergers because you can kind of see who's next to you right and so the whole investing to people to your right always makes more sense 
or left. This, this is exactly my point. You're supposed to invest, I believe, <laughs> to your left because there's, an, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be before them most likely, right? Right, exactly. Um, and I think that kind of shows a little bit more with the opposite with price protecting in this game because I think you want to buy people to your right shares so that when you sell them, you can maybe trickle feed them into the market. So you can get multiple turns in a row and maybe be able to even set up a situation where you take over somebody's company, right? And so if we're going to a situation where nobody's floated the central yet and I'd like to take it from the person to my left and I know I have three shares of the person to my right and I first sell a share, then I buy a share of that and what's his face, the person to my right protects that and then I do that again, I can maybe get three stock rounds in the amount of time before he's even had a chance to get one and I can take presidency over, right? And everybody at the table is shaking their fist at you because they keep getting skipped. Because it's the best. I'm the best. Obviously, that probably <laughs> would never actually happen in real life, but it's cool that it may be able to, right? Yeah, for sure. So super fun game. Rep number two did not. I did better than I did the first time around. Still did poorly, but I, I think this is a game that I'll have to play a few times to really get the finer points of. Yes. And I did place an order with Golden Spike Games. So hopefully some point in time, maybe 2020, I'll get it. I don't know what will happen quicker. We can actually play games together at a bar or <laughs> I'll get my Golden Spike game. <laughs> That'll be an interesting race. We shall see. All right. So there there it is. That's um, 1832. This is a big 18xx podcast. I'm loving it. All the 18xx I know. folks are going to be jazzed. Actually, it's this one's trending heavier than most of them do, too, because we got a chance to play a uh, savagely heavy game together. One of the few games we've played together in the past few weeks. I took out an evening and sat down with a couple of us, you and myself and our friend Ira, and uh, learned to play Pax Perfuriana by Matt Eklund, Phil Eklund, Jim Gutt, and Sierra Madre Games. Pax Perfuriana is actually the first one in the Pax series. Uh, also includes games like Pax Premier, Pax Renaissance, Pax Emancipation, Pax Transhumanity. We've talked about several of those in the past. The core conceit of most of those games being that they're card games that are dominated by a central market, that you are buying a certain number of these things, build a tableau of conditions that when a potential win card comes up, that you're situated such that you can win. In this case, this game is set in late 19th century Mexico, kind of northern Mexico, right along the Texas border. And you play a wealthy haciendado that is trying to build up an estate, generate an economy. And then when the time comes, you're trying to topple Porfirio Diaz and take over command of Mexico. This has been my new favorite game lately, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> I'm playing several games of this online right now. I can totally understand why you like it. It's neat. It's weird. So it does that thing that it made me question if this is a good name, game or not. We had played this for how long do you think we played it for? Three hours? We played it for probably three hours. Sure. And we played poorly. We're all really bad, right? But we got to a situation and, where... And this is this is not a game that you're going to do anything but play poorly for the first... Oh, for sure. Half a dozen reps. <laughs> you're just bad, right? I'm on game four, and I'm sucking just as bad as game one. So we get to this point after like three hours, and we're functioning in a situation where I think you are the one to decide who's going to win. Is that correct? So what was going to happen was, is if, if none of the win conditions successfully happen... Then it basically just goes to who has the most money at the end. That's right. called the gold victory. And we had battled to a uh, very apathetic stalemate where none of us could really engineer an advantage over the others. And it came down to the point where we were already going to end the game. And I was at a point where literally none of us were going to win except by money. And depending on whether I did no action or an action, determined whether one person or another would win. Right. Which... I don't think that's a reflection on the game, but I wanted to bring it up because it's like a perfect example of just like how conniving and interactive all of the decisions and actions you're doing in this game are, right? Where you had to be put in a position after three hours of playing where if you did a thing or didn't do a thing, one of your two opponents would win, right? Yep. And it, this is definitely a case that a lot of the PAX games share is that they're very intense tug of wars where you're really trying to engineer to the point where you're in this unbeatable position, but it's almost impossible to do that because somebody almost always has a foil for whatever it is that you're trying to do. Like I'm trying to accumulate enough anarchy points that I can shift the regime to anarchy and take a win that way. But in the meantime, somebody else has a foil to that. They can flip their haciendado, get an extra anarchy point so I no longer have enough, and the stalemate continues. But I thought it was neat. 
I actually thought it was kind of simple compared to the other PAX games, at least compared to like Transhumanity or I'm, I'm actually going to say Pamir because all of the rules are like on the cards. The cards are weirder and they do weirder things, but that's kind of yeah. all there is, right? It's more of like kind of a, a pure card game versus like a game featuring cards in right. Pamir or the other ones, right? Well, and I actually explained this game. I taught another one of our friends, Phil, how to play this. And I explained, I'm like, dude, this is kind of like magic with a market where you buy the cards in the middle and then play them. And they're and way like, oh. different. They are so different compared to like Pax Premier, right? Yeah, the, like the Pax Premier cards are pretty simple, right? You get an army or you can get a spy, whereas these actually kind of have a bunch of individual powers assassinate another partner and it costs two actions unless it's the uh u.s intervention regime the part that really hooked me on this one is after i learned from our friend evan scussell by the way thank you evan for teaching me this game absolutely love it evan took a night out and taught me how to play it and really appreciate it because i love the game after doing that i read the rules and started reading up on the history because honestly i knew nothing about this and was surprised at how how many pains were put to map out the abilities of those cards to the actual events or people or locations that they were, were trying to represent. And, you know, pe- we've, we've talked about this in the past, about how people will talk about how thematic a PAX game is. And we didn't really see it in PAX Premier. We're like, well, it's a good game, but I don't know that I would call it especially thematic other than the fact that all the pieces look like they're from Afghanistan. In this case, I really felt it like you could really see what this card did. And if you went and looked at what the person on that card was known for, that card matched up almost exactly with what that person did. Right. I thought that was a super neat facet of it. Yeah, I mean, like Teddy Roosevelt felt like an American occupation of Mexico, right? It didn't just feel like, okay, I'm putting some cubes in between Herat and Persia, right? Or or whatever. I'm sorry. My 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 uh, Pax Pamir. Uh, geography is not as good as it once was. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it's it's just way more thematic. And I thought that was cool, but also at the same time, there's a lot more downtime of reading the cards here. You know, it's not just kind of like you kind of know what's going on. This card is completely different than something else, right? And to make matters worse on top of that, there is 203 cards or something like that. In any given game, you're only playing with know, 70 to 80 of them, depending on player numbers. So you're not going to be seeing most of the cards in every single game. So that makes every game very, very different because you might have a game where very few enterprises show up or you might have a game that has lots and lots of partners or specific hoser card might not come up. And you have to deal with that and be able to roll with that game that you are playing that time because it's going to be different than the last game you played. Again, a nice replayability nod to that game that allows it to have a lot of play value. Yeah, it did the same thing. It was one of those games that also just makes me sad because I love this game or I think I'll love this game. But my issue is with all these games, I appreciate them from such like an artistic standpoint, but I just know they're not going to work well with our group when it gets back to normal. Right. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Like I said, I played it with J-Mac and Phil and both of them absolutely loved it. Both of them said, I'd play this again anytime. This game's great. (laughs) I guess that'd be interesting to compare this to Pamir then, because I love Pamir and I love what it has to offer. But that game is just so I've never had maybe this is just part of Pamir, but I've never had like the game where it's just like everybody knows how to play. We're just playing the game. You know, somebody has less of a market knowledge of it than somebody else. And something weird happens and it just makes it so like I feel like I'm never really just in it. And I'm worried that this game, Pax Profriana, will never really reach that bar where it is with like 1830 or whatever that kind of style of game or a Euro game or something along those lines. It's more in our wheelhouse where the game fell out of the way. There's not Mm -hmm. external factors causing us to enjoy or not enjoy the game. I wonder, though, if uh, Pax Pamir might not trip on the dudes on the map thing. It feels more like a war game because there's dudes on a map. I don't I don't know. Whereas this one, this one feels like a tableau builder. And it is tableau, what it says to be. Tableau builders are popular in our group. So could this one kind of stealthily wolf in sheep's clothing its way into our group saying, well, this is just a heavier wingspan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <God>. I'm, I, <laughs> that would. Sorry, I'm going to I'm going to punish myself for that comment. I, I did buy it, by the way, while we're chatting about it. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. And and it's funny. We actually never decompressed after our play that night. And I, I'm kind of reading that you enjoyed it, but I was really actually very curious to hear what you really thought of it. I did. It's just the same thing where it's like, 
part of the adulthood that I've learned, and I'm sorry, this can get it kind of out of the woods, but you, you can't have everything, right? So like I used to love camping when I was a kid, right? And when I was in college, it was the thing I did, right? Because it's an affordable thing that you can do when you're 21 and buy a case of beer with your friends and just hang out in the woods. It's not, it's, it's a pretty cheap activity. But the issue is now that I have a job and I can't just travel all the time and I got a lovely wife who also likes camping, but we have other stuff we like to do a lot too. You have to make sacrifices. And to me, yep. the PAX games are just games I'm going to have to kind of sacrifice. They're a little bit too out there to like really fit in well with our group. They're a little bit too weird and esoteric theme wise to like really deep dive with my family or people that kind of play the same game over and over and over again. So it ends up getting kind of just making me a little sad that they exist because I like them and I want to just delve into them, but it just doesn't seem to work with at least the current setup. Cause, and that was kind of what I realized about Pamir. It was a gorgeous production. I loved the game. I thought it was really accessible and people would understand it, but I've never gotten that play. You know, the, I know everybody here is going to love this game. We all know how to play. We've played it once. Maybe we're not all great at the game, but we're just in the game. There's always something holding it back. I think I did have close to that game. A few, the last time I played Pax Pamir, I played with a couple of friends who had never played it before, and we played it through, and neither one of them really got it. I could tell they were kind of starting to get it, and both of them wanted to play it again immediately. And oh, great. I, so, I so rarely do that, but they both said, you know what? We got a lot invested into this game right now. I feel like I'm just on the verge of figuring this out. Let's run it back and play it again. And that second game was great because you could tell people were now making smart decisions from things that they had learned and it really was a cat fight yeah but i mean that's awesome but then that goes to the same thing how many times have we done that at our game night play yeah, the same game twice in a row right <laughs> right because we all bring eight different bags of games so it just becomes this thing that i just love from the art but i feel like i can't interact with it the same way with me camping right now. I'd go camping once or twice a year now if I could. And every time I do, I'd be like, this is so fun. I wish I could do this more, but I just I just can't. There's other stuff in my life that are, that's causing it to stay away. But that being said, I did buy the game. So we'll see. Maybe I can get it to be something I really love. But that's, there Pax, we go. that's Pax Porfiriana. The one thing I think we should definitely do on this, though, is what do you think it is mogul scale wise, by the way? I've now taught it twice. I've had it taught to me. I've now taught it twice. It's taken an hour every single time. So by the token and the rules weight there, I think this is a four rules wise. Maybe if you got really good at teaching it, you could make it a three. But I'm actually, given our new kind of readjusted scale weight on this one, I'm calling this a four E. Maybe I'm overvaluing it. But man, every time I play it, my brain burns a little more. Absolutely. So that's Pax Porfiriana. Big fans. I will say the other thing that this has done is it's really lit a fire underneath me. I want to play Pax Transhumanity very badly. Me too. And every time you play with me, Mark, just know that you're going to have a like somewhat abstract about life complaint from me. You know, I'm just going to say, oh, this is so cool, but I'm never going to play this again. It's like this fleeting <laughs> feeling of Transhumanity just slipping me by, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and that that one's I think is tougher to just get out and play. The one positive I'll say about Pax Perfuriana, it's low on lingo, and a lot of the Pax games really put a lot of lingo in there. Transhumanity's probably the worst on that one. Like yeah, at least in what we've played, yeah. Right. And you just need to understand that what does syndicating mean? I don't know. Well, let's go look at the syndicating flowchart. Whereas Pax Perfuriana really didn't have that. It's it. You read the card and it seems pretty apparent on what you're supposed to do. You don't have to go look at the glossary yeah. to see what that term and means. And actions are actions. Actions are not four or five step processes. Right. Yeah. You buy a card. That's an action. You sell a card. That's, that's an action. Thing. Right, 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 right. The implications of that are different. But yeah, no, agreed. Pax Perfuriana sweet. Happy we got to play it. Thanks, Evan, for teaching Mark because you by extension taught me. Yeah, indeed. Uh, last one, we're going to mention that we played together, and we're not going to do much more beyond mention that we played it together because I don't know that we have enough to talk about it yet, is we finally got to play Wildcatters. Woo! We did it. It's been <laughs> a long time coming. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is the, exactly the mention you just brought up was that it's been a long time coming. This game, worse than any other game that I own, I think is always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Yeah, from at least how you described it to me, and I apologize, I'm not the owner of this game nor the rule reader, so I don't quite know, but it's one of those games that you need to play at a certain player count, which I believe is four, and you need to, it's like kind of long, 
And so with our group, and, and going, it's kind of heavy. It's yeah. it's heavy. It's long, and it must be played at four players. So you need to have a committed group of four heavyish players all together at the same time, and that's so rare. Well, and that's the issue with our group is I love our group. Don't get me wrong. I would never change it, but there's certain things that do not work well with it. And this one, I think, is one of them kind of the same thing where it's why would we play a game that we know is only going to play four by like halfway kind of deciding what the two table assignments are going to be, you know, when we could instead say, hey, why don't we create a Great Western Trail or something that's like 80 percent of the way there to this game that we know we still really love, really, really, really like but won't seem as exclusionary as this game could be, right? Ultimately, I think this is one we'll really love and we'll know how to play better. And yes, there'll be lower friction to get it out and play it now that we've kind of gotten over the hump of giving it a sample play. But I don't think we can draw any conclusions on it beyond learning about it from a sample play perspective. Yes, sir. And this is at the top of the list of games to play in person when we can actually do that again, whenever that may be. I'm in. Those are the games that we've played, which, boy, for people that don't feel like we're playing a lot of games, we had a lot to talk about tonight. Well, it has been a pretty long time since our last episode, so in defense, <laughs> it seems like a pretty packed week, but really it's been like four or five weeks, maybe six. It uh, hasn't been quite that long, but uh, it, it's been it, a while. We, we have stretched out our uh, release date a little bit. It's summertime. We all got a lot of stuff going on, and we're still going to keep kicking out episodes. Well, the good news is, is that that is not the only game related stuff that we've been up to. I've actually been using quite a bit of my time not gaming with other people to work on my game collection, specifically with either updating and upgrading my games by making new components for them or just straight up print and playing new games. Jake, have you been doing any of that? I did when <laughs> the corona first started. I was super productive. It was rainy out. I was going to just fix all these print and play games. I had two or three on the docket that I just knew I had to finish. It was going to be awesome. So I hit out, beat, um, did 18 LA really fast, then did 18 EU. I'm the best. And then I've done nothing since those like two days. <laughs> of just manic work on them. And I'm sitting at a big old laminated pile of 1828 I just need to do. But I know you did it. So I kind of could just play your your copy for a little bit and kind of plank away on mine. I've had a pile of print and play projects just back up on me and to the point where it was kind of starting to cause me mental anguish at the number of backed up projects I had and spent a lot of my free time, late night time this spring, just working through a lot of those. And it's been about a year since we've done our last print and play update and thought it was maybe time to just uh, revisit it and talk about some of the projects we've been working on lately. Let's do it. So my quick two were 18LA and 18EU. Those are the two that I've finished in the last while. My 18EU looks gorgeous, which I'm very proud of it for. And 18LA looks fine. Back us up a little bit, Jake. Uh, where'd the files come from on those things? Who- oh, I will do the whole thing. So the first files for 18LA... I kindly emailed Tony. This is before they were selling the tracks games. And I said, hey, I'm interested in some of your games. And he said, hey, why don't you choose one of them? And I will give it to you for free. Such a nice guy. So I got chose 18 LA because I was looking for kind of an expansion to 1846. Pretty simple to print out. And it was pretty quick. So looks awesome. I think I'm going to buy the rest of the 18 tracks or tracks catalog. I don't know what we're calling it yet, but. We shall see. I'll have to play 18 LA before I decide, make that decision. I do actually have all four of those and they are on my list of things to print. (laughs) You have a big list. And my second (laughs) one being 18 EU, which the files were done wonderfully. So by, I believe Broggles is his handle on board game geek, but he got the rights to, or not the rights. He got permission to post his redraw on it. And it's a really beautiful design. It's really modern and minimal. It kind of looks Ikea-y in almost the way it's put together. You yeah, know, I think that's a good description of it for sparse, sure. Some designy elements, some lines. I can't remember. I think Broggles is the guy who always does the really artistic kind of redraws. You know, he's going to say, okay, well, this redraw is done in the style of gothic printing in whatever year. Yeah. Yada, yada. Yeah. I love his redraws from exactly that perspective. He, he, he'll he pick like a design language or a design theme and decide, oh, I'm going to redraw this particular game in that style just because I feel like doing that style. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they always come out beautiful. 
Yeah, and the 18EU one is absolutely gorgeous. I would love for this to be kind of an art style that's picked up by a publisher because I just think it's so clean, so concise, really, really, really good looking port. And I've played the game before, so I thought it was great. And uh, I'm done with it now. I did all the tokens the other day, and it looks just great. But that's about me. I know you've been working on a lot more than me, Mark. Jake, I'm on to you. Mm-hmm. You get part of your print and play stuff done by talking me into print and playing things and then leveraging my effort. Oh, 100%, my dude. It's great. It's the best thing. You did all the boxes for both 1828 and 18EU, which is the best. <laughs> so this all started for me as batch of projects with Jake saying, hey, sh- dude, you should do a print and play of 18EU. And I went, mm, what? Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that is. Oh, check it out. This dude Broggles did it. It's gorgeous. And I looked at the artwork and I went, oh, you're right. I have to do that. So I decided to do that, and I've been meaning to print a copy of 1890 at the same time. So I ended up reprinting uh, the boards and boxes, the same place that we talked about last time we did a PNP episode, uh, from BoardGamesMaker.com, where you upload the artwork, and they make a nice, beautiful, professionally done box and a nice, beautiful, professionally done board. And you're a long way down the print and play run by having those things printed for you. I know that's quite not the DIY way to do it, but if I'm going through the effort of doing all this stuff, I want it to look like a professionally made game. And there's something to be said to just really love your printing, right? So I think there'd be something to be said to not, like let's say someone were to professionally print the 18 EU copy. I don't think I'm going to buy it, even if it has the same art. I like how well and, and well put together our games are, right? And I have no need to upgrade it. Right. Right, exactly. And if I was in a point where I like took a box and just slapped some stickers on it, it kind of looks like just a print and play. You know it's a print and play. Maybe I don't want to do it as much. You know, maybe maybe it's double dipping if that game ever comes out. Sure. And yeah, these are all games that aren't, aren't things that are available for sale by anybody and they're freely right. available. If I'm going to go through the effort, I want to make something that I'm proud to pull out on the table and I'll, I'll pull out and somebody will say, wow, I've never gotten a chance to play this game. And holy crap, this thing is beautiful because... Honestly, it doesn't take that much more time to make something beautiful when you're print and playing it. It might cost a little more money, depending on how you get it done. But again, it's still less money than buying one of these games off the shelf. So it's worth it to me to do it. But other people might not have the same answer to the problem. Since then, update, I have completed a copy of 1890 and got all that done. Turned out absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it does look beautiful. You sent me some photos. Just in time to figure out there's a typo on the board that Nara is priced at 40 instead of 20. And now I'm going to have to have another one printed. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, uh. You won't just Sharpie or, or do a little print, just that little spot to the right size and cut it out and sticker it. I would just do that. Did you not just hear the rant I went down yeah. about the rabbit hole I went through to make it perfect? Yeah, so you're weirder than me. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with it being slightly bad. Uh, I went through so much effort to make this gorgeous that that's just always going to chafe at me if I don't reprint the board. Got it. Oh, that sucks. Well, and the, 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 the accidental mistype on our 18 EU boxes, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Let's not the talk about that. T-N-E instead of T-H-E. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I need to you, have that reprinted also. You really don't have to fix mine. It's only on the front of the board. It's no big deal. Or the front of the box, pardon me. Not a big deal. It's fine on the sides. I don't even look at the front of the board. Don't even worry about it, Mark. I'm fine. Right. The one thing I have done recently is I have gotten lots smarter about making token decals. I used to uh, print them on photo paper and use a 15 millimeter punch and then glue them onto the token discs. That was a lot of work. I actually got smart about it and relayed them out so that they would print nicely onto a pre-die cut sticker sheet. And that works way better. That's awesome. (laughs) It takes a fraction of the time to do. So I've improved that one. I've also gotten into making custom first player markers for all these games, Jake. Yeah, this is the other reason it's good to be friends with Mark. I feel like a lot of our conversations are me slightly cajoling you to like do things but like in a polite <laughs> way. And I was talking to you about how cool all these first player markers that the all board game guys are putting out guys. It's just got, but he put out like a really cool little crab for 18 Chesapeake and for 1882, it's gonna be a little beaver because that's Canada, I guess. And I was thinking, Oh, wouldn't it be cool to have those same exact kind of art, single colored wooden priority deal tokens for other games. And so I convinced you to do that for, both uh 18 max and 1817 the first one being a cactus for for max and what what was what was the uh the second one mark for 1817 1817 is a very heavy stock market stock manipulation game so we've got the wall street 
bowl as oh, a first yeah. player marker for that one. And it looks so cool. You haven't even seen these yet, have you, Jake? I made these like a month ago for well, you. Well, we don't see each other anymore. We, we, we only are digital friends. We could live on the other side of the world. You never know. But now I'm actually kind of wondering. I'm a little worried. I don't remember if this game just has regular PD or if it goes by value. Hmm. But whatever. It'll still be a fun little thing for me to own in my box regardless. So, yeah, I'm excited to see them because I'm going to spray paint them just a single color. Not because I don't like the way the woodcut ones. I just want to have them look all the same as the AG, AAG one or all board games. AAG. Sorry. Pardon me. Brain fart. <laughs> I was actually inspired by your requesting those custom markers and I resin printed a Tory Gate for my copy of 1890. One of the prominent features of Kyoto, which is kind of centrally located in the 1890 game, is Fushimi Inari Shrine. Sorry, Japanese. I'm sure I slaughtered the pronunciation <laughs> there, but it's famous because there are thousands of these orange Japanese gates all over that shrine. And it's just, it's an amazing place. And that's a very strong image that I have of that area. So I thought that would make a very perfect first player marker for that. And I'm considering putting these things up on my Etsy store. So, you know, if this is something that you'd want to add to your game, hit me up. We might be able to uh, find a way to make that happen. Absolutely. They do look really sweet. Your 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 little stuff is fun to see your creative juices flow and uh, cajole you into doing something. But the real <laughs> question is, what other kind of priority deal markers are we going to have to make? You know, because I think we have 1822 mechs coming up. Is that going to be another cactus? I don't know. Maybe is, hmm. is, is it rude to do a maracas or a skull or some other kind of Mexican pinata? Pinata, yeah, that's got to that's got to be rude. A sombrero, you know. No, pin, there's no way a pinata is rude. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have it's to an ask alpaca. My, I'll ask it's my like a, friend. Yeah, it's it's a fancily decorated alpaca. There's no way that can be insensitive for sure. But we're we're gonna have to figure out what it is and what would be the best most Mexican thing for 1822 Mex and the other ones as well. It's gonna be fun. It's a fun little project to figure out. Yet another thing to add to my PAX Premier markers on my Etsy store. So there it is. Anyway, if you have ideas for custom first player markers, maybe that's a thing. I don't know. Never considered that before. So I may have not been printing and playing as much as you have, Mark, but I have been buying stuff. A good friend of ours did a big run of boxes, the same ones that look like the all aboard game ones, the same dimensions, and found the manufacturer for them and kind of did a pretty grassroots Kickstarter group buy kind of thing. So I agreed to buy 26 of them. I don't know why. I don't quite need 26 of them, but thankfully there's been some friends both locally and semi-local that have agreed to buy some of them for their own print and play projects. So I have plenty of real estate to put the print and play projects in. I just not, don't necessarily have the print and plays to fill them as of now. Well, and you brought up some great ideas with that. I'm actually buying some of the boxes off of you as well. And not that I need to have a big stock of boxes around, but there are some times definitely where some of these games are in overlarge boxes like uh, Chicago Express, where that could definitely be combined into a smaller box and print out some nice labels for that box and condense the size of that thing. And that's actually a pretty good use for those boxes. Agreed. Well, especially because you could combine a few of those, right? Like I don't like the way Paris Connection or Chicago Express look, so I could just put them hopefully in one box right? With a little label and just put cube rail games or something. It's a pretty right. cheap little solution to clear up some space. And then, hey, when I go to a game night, I can bring two games instead of just one. How cool is that? Boy, it's a whole bunch cheaper to buy them in bulk than it is to buy onesie twosie and have them shipped to you from China. Absolutely. And if you are interested in getting some of these boxes, I believe the dimensions are two and a half inches by like just under 12 inches by just under like 10 inches. Shoot me an email, shoot me a message on BGG, Instagram, whatever. I can figure out something. I think I got them for about roughly like four or five dollars each after they shipped to me. They're the kind of standard size that are used for a lot of Euro games, the, the not square Euro games. So like it's the same size box Yokohama's in, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So if you like any of those, they're just plain white. They're pretty durable. Just shoot me a little ring. Cool. Well, I've been actually doing some print and play stuff that is not 18xx related. What? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, while I had the laminator out and while I was printing stuff, I kind of just threw these right in line with the other stuff I was doing. And uh, I just wanted to talk about these things because I think they're nifty. Haven't played with either one of them yet, but uh, I actually think I might in the very near future. So one of them that I did is I printed and laminated a copy of the expansion that was released for Metro X. It was a it was a fan expansion, but it was for the London tube map. Instantly downloaded that and laminated that. So hopefully I will get that played soon. And 
one that uh, I want to play, especially with you, Jake, because you've been the one ranting about this more than anybody else, is there's an expansion for the Oink Game Twins, published actually by Reiner Kinesia. Yeah, and it does the thing that I've always complained about in that game. There's different hand orders. Yep, it gives you different, uh, basically you draw what the payout rules are for that particular round, rather than I was using the same payout order. And so I printed those out, laminated them and cut them, and they fit nicely inside the Twins box and... We'll be able to upgrade our play of that game next time we play it. It's fun doing some stuff that are on the game periphery and still being active in this hobby when we can't just always get together. But I, if I was a gambling man, I think we might get together in T-minus three-ish weeks, something like that. Everybody's experience is going to be different, right? And everybody right. has to make their own choices. Without deep diving on this one, we've both been pretty conservative about our contact with people yeah. and you know, being good citizens and taking this all pretty seriously. At least in Minnesota, we're now kind of T plus three weeks into reopening a lot of stuff and going to kind of wait and see exactly how that all shakes out before doing anything more direct. I'd like to see some history on what actually happens when a state opens up before I start just going ham and getting together yeah, with lots of people. We're at the same boat because, I mean, we've had small groups for about three or four weeks now, and I think we have had 50 plus groups for oh, like a week now, week and a half. So we'll certainly get that data. But that's 50 plus, but with social distancing. And it's pretty tough to air quote social distance when you're actually at a board game table. True. Yeah, we are getting everyone's everyone's stuff is mixed together. If you're playing a game, it's a perfect. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a higher touch type of uh, activity. So we'll see. We're doing really well statewide. I think we're a long way from being out of the woods still. But you do reach a point where you do have to expand your social circle out a little bit and you pick your battles. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's been a jam-packed episode. How fun is that? It's good to do this again, dude. We'll definitely do this again sooner next time. It's always a little tougher during the summer because lots of things are going on and we're not getting together every week like we used to. We have to kind of wait till we've got enough stuff to talk about, but uh, we certainly want to keep the ball rolling going forward. Well, that's been great. I've been Jake and you've been who? (laughs) I'm Mark and we're the Gaming Moguls. Thank you guys and we'll see you next time. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.